110, verses 7 to 18, and it's page 759 in the Pew Bible. Therefore Jesus said again, I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. All who ever come before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Doreen. Good morning, Wallenstein. It is so, so good always to visit you guys. Big hello from Woodside. We love you all. Uh, it is so good to know that we have a dear ally in the gospel of Jesus. And honestly, we cheer for you guys. We root for your ministry. It is so good to visit. Everyone enjoying summer thus far? Some, some frowny faces? Highlights? You got some highlights? My highlight so far is six-month-old boy discovering what grass on bare feet feels like. You get, like it's just so good. I normally like to start with a story, but I couldn't think of any that weren't sports-related. Thankfully, my amazing wife reminded me, I don't always have to do the same thing. Who knew? Sometimes I can just get right to it, as she said, be peppy. So I want to just pray, and then we're going to get right into our text for this morning. We're going to be in John chapter 10. We're going to be staring at Christ again. But let's pray, and then we'll begin. Lord God, we do thank you for today. Thank you for Sundays. Thank you for the opportunity for the church to gather, and we thank you for this congregation, this family of God who loves you, Lord. This morning, we're seeking to glorify you. And God, we just acknowledge, we remember that over the course of this day, billions of people around the world are going to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And we celebrate along with them. We're so grateful that your word is being made known and that your son is becoming king over lives all around this globe. Lord God, we trust that you're going to speak to us today through your spirit and through your word, and we invite you to do so. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So let's set a little bit of context before we get to our text for today. The Gospel of John is not directly chronological. That's not John's intention, telling the story in order. His intention is to show us who Jesus is, what he's like, and John gives away his purpose. It's to push us to believe in him. That's the goal. So he writes things down that happened in the life of Christ to give us glimpses of Jesus, who he is, what he's like, so that we will believe. 
So in John 10, Jesus has at this point been in Jerusalem. He's teaching and healing people throughout 7, 8, 9. Now we're in 10. And by the time we get to chapter 10, he's addressing a group of Jews, at least some of which are Pharisees, who are actually already intent on killing Jesus because he's repeatedly and unequivocally claimed to be God. So the end of chapter 9, you maybe remember the Pharisees and Jesus are arguing about spiritual sight and blindness. You'll maybe remember Andreas's clever blurred out slide that looked the same, but you couldn't quite see it. So spiritual sight and blindness. And the Pharisees end up asking Jesus if he thinks they're blind. And he says, you're guilty because you claim to see that you're saying you're leading people towards God when in fact you're leading people away from them, him, away from him. And then Jesus decides basically to expand on this conversation of spiritual sight and blindness by using a metaphor. And that brings us to chapter 10 and verse 1. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. When he's brought them out, all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So seemingly out of nowhere in this big conversation about spiritual sight and blindness, Jesus seemingly randomly brings up farming. Any shepherds here this morning? Not a one? Oh, a one. Just a one. Well, the hills around Jerusalem were littered with shepherds in Jesus' day, and so everyone hearing him would have understood what he was saying, and immediately you're like, wait a minute, Chris, the Bible says they did not understand what he was saying to them. Like, well, yeah, they didn't understand the significance of the metaphor. The story itself, they totally got. It was maybe even too plain, right? They're like, yeah, we know. Sheep stay in pens. Shepherds lead sheep. Thieves are sneaky. They avoid the door. They get that. But Jesus' purpose sails directly over their heads, right? So then he explains, and that brings us to the passage that was read earlier for us. Verse 7. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door, the gate of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. He'll go in and come out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So Jesus says he's the door or the gate. It depends on your translation. Remember all this in the context of conversation about spiritual sight and blindness. And so, without apology or caveat, Jesus says he is the only entrance, the only doorway to salvation. You must enter through Jesus to be saved. And accompanying that salvation is abundant life, full life. That should give us reason to pause all by itself. He'll soon state this even more clearly by saying that no one comes to the Father except through me. The Pharisees have to be hearing this thinking, blasphemy, right? 
Jesus is once again putting himself level with God. He's claiming God status. They've got to be reaching for stones. And Jesus is also here calling them thieves and robbers, claiming that they're not doing a very good job taking care of God's sheep. So we got some major claims from Christ already and very likely some major tension. But now Jesus is going to carry on into one of the most famous passages of Scripture and also maybe one of the most important because Jesus is going to make some personal claims about his own character and nature. So verse 11. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who's a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand. He cares nothing for the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And Jesus wants to make it abundantly clear to the crowds, to the Pharisees, just who exactly he is. I'm the good shepherd. Why? Why, Jesus? Why would you say that? Again, maybe that seems strange to us because shepherding is a less and less common occupation, but this would be astounding to the Jews, especially those with a religious education at the time. So think back to Sunday school, the chronological order of the Bible, all those flannel graphs that you loved so much. God reveals himself over and over again as the, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, right? Lots of participation. Phenomenal, just like Woodside. <laughs> Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those are the patriarchs of Israel, right? Jacob gets renamed Israel. Abraham, very rich in livestock. He was in part a shepherd. His son, Isaac, plants crops, shepherds flocks. His son, Jacob, goes to work for his uncle as a shepherd to work for a wife. Then they're stuck in Egypt. Then Moses. Moses flees Egypt to the wilderness and becomes a shepherd. King David, the true king of Israel, begins his life as a shepherd. The prophet Amos is a shepherd. Jesus' birth is announced to shepherds. For whatever reason, this occupation is significant to God. And it's not significant to the Jews for its prestige, right? It's still like a filthy, low-level job. It's given to the youngest son, not the oldest son. It's not considered noble, even though it's very important historically. And then Jesus says that, like, most people who don't own the sheep, but they work as a shepherd, they run at the first sign of danger, right? They care much more about their own lives than their boss's sheep, and so their trustworthiness is not as high as the owner's trustworthiness. And Jesus makes it clear, I know my own, and my own know me. And then we prep ourselves to have our minds blown that that knowledge is as intimate as the knowledge the Father has of the Son, and that the Son has of the Father. Wow. And Christ says, I'm a shepherd. But this isn't the only important thing about the shepherd. We read on kind of the end of verse 15. I'm the good shepherd and I lay down my life for the sheep. 
And I have other sheep that are not of this fold, and I must bring them in also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. And so three times in those verses, Jesus tells us that part of his shepherding is laying down his life for his sheep. Now, in the context of the metaphor, that makes some sense, right? Like, it was surely common enough for a shepherd to have been killed while defending his sheep, whether from wild animals, lions and wolves, or maybe thieves. There's a key difference, though. Any of those times that a shepherd would have died defending his sheep, he would not have intended to die. He would have been intending to live. But Jesus reveals that it is in fact his plan all along to die for his sheep. He's doing this of his own accord. And the Father loves him for it. Jesus also very casually mentions that there's other sheep. There's going to be one flock under himself. We now know that this is an allusion to the, like, the inclusion of all of us in the family of God. Not only are Jews welcome to come through the door, but the Gentiles are also welcome to come through and be with the shepherd. One flock under one shepherd through one door. So we're going to come back to some of these statements in a minute, but first we want to see how those hearing this directly from the mouth of Christ responded. Because he's made some relatively staggering claims here, right? I'm the only means of salvation. I'm the door. I'm the shepherd over the sheep. There's going to be just one flock that includes others. How are the Jews going to respond to these claims? We read on. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he is a demon. He's insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who's oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem, and it was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. And so the Jews gathered around him, and they said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered him, It's not for good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. And Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say to him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you're blaspheming, because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of the Father, 
then don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you don't believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to a place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained, and many came to him. And they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. And that's the chapter. So we see the outcome of all of these drastic claims. Multiple times, they try to either kill or arrest Jesus for saying he is equal with the Father. Some thought he's demon-possessed. Some thought he's doing good. Some believed he was the Christ. Some did not. And I love that little line in there when the crowds are like, just tell us outright if you're the Messiah. And Jesus is like, I have. The problem is not with whether or not I've told you who I am. The problem is, is that you are not my sheep. So they literally, they pick up rocks to kill him. And Jesus doesn't cower, right? He's like, oh, really? For which good thing are you going to kill me for? That's got to be so emotional for him. Like, remember who this is. This is the creator. This is the guy who made all of the crowd and the rocks they're holding. This is the only wise God that they're ridiculing. He knit these people together in their mother's wombs. He must be heartbroken at their rejection of him. And he's like, where? Where is the bad that I have done? And they say, well, it's not for the work that you're doing. It's not that you've done anything bad. It's that you're claiming to be God. And Jesus responds, well, doesn't what I've done correlate with who I am? If you don't believe me, believe the works. Believe in me. And the leaders, again, they try to arrest him. And Jesus escapes and leaves. And that last verse of our chapter is one I want us to keep repeating. Many believed in Jesus. In all of these drastic statements and wild claims, some people heard them, and they were like, yeah, that guy is God. Isn't that amazing? Most of us here this morning are in the same position. We heard the wild, outlandish claims of Jesus Christ, and we said, yeah, that guy is God. We saw a man who did things and said things, and we are saying that that human being is actually God. But there are maybe some here this morning who don't believe the things that Jesus said. So why Jesus? That's the series, right? Why should I believe in him? Why should I follow him? Why commit my life to this thing instead of some other thing? Or maybe there's some here this morning who have a, a worldview, like an understanding of life and reality that includes a God, but you haven't committed your actions to representing the idea that a God exists. So you sat down, you thought about it, you're like, yeah, okay, so absolutely everything coming from absolutely nothing for absolutely no reason, doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So there's probably a God, but then that idea, that theory has yet to affect your life. You're doing nothing about it. It's not practical for you yet. Well, this morning, I want all of us to especially focus on two things that Jesus said in John 10 and to really chew on them. 
That's where we're going to zero in because there's a bunch of times throughout the Gospel of John, we should remind ourselves, John wrote this, John walked around with Jesus. He heard him speak. They're buddies. And there's a bunch of times in John where John records Jesus saying, I am fill in the blank, this or that. They're called the I am statements in John. And we're given two of them in our text this morning. And these are like critical components of the essence of Jesus. These are things that we have to believe about him in order to believe in him because they're core, they're essential to his nature. So we're going to look at these two statements. We're going to ask, why, Jesus? Why would you say that? What are you getting at? And then we're going to take our best to make the theory practical, to apply the truth. We want to understand what's true about God, and then we want to attach it to our regular old lives. So the first I am statement we come to is in verse 7. Jesus said, I am the door for the sheep. We said it already that without apology or caveat, Jesus just says, I'm the only entrance doorway to salvation. You must enter through Jesus to be saved. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. That's verse 9. So let's look at why Jesus would tell us this. What's the purpose of this statement? What's the function? What are some of the ramifications? Well, Jesus' purpose, at least in part, in saying this, is to make an exclusive claim. I am the door, the only door. He says, if anyone enters by me, those words are in um, an emphatic position in Greek, by me. Uh, The metaphor he's using of a sheep pen, there is just one door. There's no other way. No other way exists. And so the purpose of this claim is to say that only Jesus is the door. What's the function of the door? Salvation. That's the way that you enter. And John only uses the verb to save a couple times in his gospel. He never really explains totally what it means. But in the context, it's, it's like a comprehensive term for the whole process of people being brought, delivered from the penalty of their sin and brought into the blessing of God. That's the function of the door. And so Jesus decides to use the metaphor of sheep on a hillside to illustrate his point. There's a pen with just one door in it. You can see how I'm the only way. He used other metaphors in the Old Testament. Often in the Psalms, a very similar picture is proposed, but instead of a sheep pen, it's a strong city, a walled city with a gate, a fortress. Maybe you picture in your mind a medieval castle with a moat and a drawbridge. It's all saying the same thing. Any of those mental pictures, they illustrate both the need for a door to get in somewhere and also the exclusive nature of the door. So let's think through some of the ramifications of Jesus saying, I'm the door. I'm the only means of salvation. We already talked about that's an exclusive claim. So what does that mean? That makes what anyone believes about Jesus the most important thing in their life. Believe him or don't believe him. Whatever they believe about him is the most important thing in their life. Maybe the shortest way to say the gospel, the good news of Christianity, is with three words. Jesus is God. 
We'd obviously have to fill that out a little bit. But that's kind of the whole deal. Everyone who believes that statement and its effects at the exclusion of other gods, they can see the door. They can go in and come out and find pasture. Anyone who does not believe that Jesus is the one true God, it's like they can't see the door. Or if they think there's some other means of salvation, it's kind of like going up to the wall of a fortress and drawing a door on it with chalk. That's a pretend door. That is not going to let you in. And Jesus repeated this over and over and over and over again throughout his ministry. He made it inescapably clear that all roads do not lead to heaven. Only one does. So you say, what about faithful believers in other religions? Jesus is saying, they don't know God. That's actually the context of this actual passage. He's talking to Orthodox Jews, and he's saying to them, your understanding of God is not good enough. It's not going to rescue you. Only I can. You have to believe in Jesus to obtain salvation. So then maybe you think of Islam, you're like, well, they believe in Jesus. They think he's a good prophet. Not good enough. Jesus said right in our text this morning, I will give my sheep eternal life. That's God stuff. That's not good prophet stuff. That's God stuff. He's God. And actually, Judaism and Islam, they have a lot in common with progressive Christianity. All three groups, to some extent, they believe in the person of Jesus, but they do not give him his full supremacy. They make him less than the door. And the I am the door statement from Christ is essentially Jesus revealing to us that he is the Savior. That's one major reason why Jesus is worth following. (laughs) He's the only one who can save you. And Christ tells us what that salvation brings. It brings life to the fullest, abundant life. Life eternal, in fact. That's a pretty compelling reason to follow Jesus. And in the same way that 2,000 years ago, some people heard that, and they believed those words, and other people heard that, and they wanted Christ dead, that same dichotomy exists today. Some people are going to hear Jesus say, I am the only one who can bring life, and they'll believe in him. They will turn towards him. And some people are going to hear that and wish Christ dead. They'll want him to go away. Some to the point that they're willing to kill Christians. Or maybe more moderately, more Canadianly, they'll be like, come on, Jesus. You need to be more inclusive. You can't make exclusive statements like that. That's offensive. That's an offensive claim. You can't do that. Oh, yes, he can. (laughs) And he does make that claim. But he's also going to make another claim, and it's important to tie them together. In chapter 10, further along, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Jesus is the good leader of the sheep. He has one flock. He guides it. More than that, he lays down his life for them. So let's look at why Jesus would tell us this. What is the purpose of this statement? What's its function? What are some of the ramifications? Well, Christ's purpose in saying this is not necessarily to make an exclusive claim like he did with the last one, 
but this time to make a character claim. I'm a shepherd. More than that, I'm, I'm good. I'm good at shepherding. We noted already that this shepherd will die defending his sheep. And although many shepherds before him died defending their sheep, they were not intending to. Jesus is intending to, and so maybe that part of the claim is exclusive. Like a good shepherd might accidentally die for his sheep, but the good shepherd does it on purpose. He's willingly laying down his life for his sheep. He's already foreshadowing his purpose in coming to earth, being found in the likeness of men. He's borderline mixing metaphors we sang about this morning. The lamb soon to be slain. And maybe at face value in English, you see the word good, and you immediately think well-behaved, like morally upright. I'm the well-behaved shepherd. I'm a good guy. Now, it's important to say that although Jesus is absolutely, of course, totally righteous, the word good here actually means something a lot closer to beautiful. It's not good as in good behavior. It's good as in attractive. It's pleasing to the eye. It's fitting. It's good. It looks right. Jesus is the beautiful shepherd. He's good and he's good. As one commentator put it, it is possible to be morally upright repulsively. But Jesus is, is good and it's beautiful. And the I am the good shepherd statement is essentially Jesus revealing to us that he is the Lord. Since we are to be his sheep, those who recognize, who hear and listen to his voice, that makes Jesus the one calling the shots. As the door, he's the savior. As the shepherd, he's the Lord. He's to be obeyed. It's fitting to take his words seriously and act on them. That's the image of the shepherd with his sheep. And that's kind of the exact image that gets used much earlier in the Bible for King David. In the Psalms, a different psalm writer, Asaph, writes this. God chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds, from following the nursing ewes, and he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With an upright heart, David shepherded them and guided them with a skillful hand, guiding people with an upright heart and a skillful hand. And so David becomes Israel's Lord. Lord is in king. And his shepherd's skill set remains valuable in his new occupation. And like so much of King David's life acts as like this archetype or this uh, forerunner, an image, a forerunner of Christ. And I know that I can't hear the words in John 10 from Christ saying, I'm the good shepherd, and not immediately think, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. King David writes that, and although David was a shepherd who became a king, he still knows who exactly is the one shepherding him. It's the Lord. It's Yahweh. It's God personal. And now Jesus is, is he's filling out the psalm for us. He's saying, yes, the Lord is your shepherd. And you know what? I'm the good shepherd. Let me tell you about my heart, about my plans for you, about my ways. I'm here. I'm right here. Friends, we get the privilege of like reading those psalms with all the blanks filled in. It's remarkable. You can read that psalm like this. The good shepherd is my shepherd. I will not want. 
Jesus makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Jesus has restored my soul. Jesus, he, he leads me in paths of righteousness for the sake of his name. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because Jesus is with me. His rod and staff, they comfort me. Jesus prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. He anoints my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy are going to follow me all the days of my life, and I'm going to go live in Jesus' house forever. Wow! So why Jesus? Why say this stuff? Why you and not somebody else? Why would Jesus say I'm the only Savior, and I'm the good Lord. <laughs> it's simple, really. He is. He is those things. That's why. And in both titles, Jesus does something to prove who he is. He shows what his essence is like by his actions. That was basically his argument with the Pharisees. So he brings many into the fold. He collects the nation. He speaks from his voice. He lays down his life. What he is and what he does are linked. They're connected. And friends, that's a good reminder for us too. Who we are, what we believe, and what we do, they're linked. Your essence and your actions are connected. Hear these words from Jesus. This isn't from Luke chapter 6. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is known by its fruit. For figs aren't gathered from thorn bushes, nor grapes picked from a bramble. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So who you are, what you believe, it comes out in your actions inevitably. And we kind of know that instinctively, don't we? So take a second and think about what you do. It's revealing what you believe. And do you like what you see? Because it, it directly reflects what you believe. It's showing us your heart. And friends, this is, this is why Jesus, this is why he is utterly essential to know because you are never going to be able to be good enough. You're never going to be able to work hard enough. And the gospel reminds us that Jesus saved you not because of your good works. And he saved you with good works for you to do that he prepared in advance. It's not good works that lead to salvation. Salvation leads to good works. They're connected ideas. They're held in tension. We need both. We need a Savior, and we need a Lord. <laughs> he has to be both. So if you think he's your Savior, but he's not your Lord, friend, you are in grave danger of not taking Christ at his word. Not, not your Lord as in, yeah, Jesus died for me, but I don't listen to his voice. Right? I know he says in his word not to love money, but I do. I ignore the voice of Christ. I know he says in his word not to get drunk, but I do. 
I ignore the voice of Christ. I know he says in his word not to be sexually immoral, but I am. I ignore the voice of Christ. Friends, let the shepherd lead you. He's good. He's beautiful. His voice is calling you into green pastures to still quiet waters. He wants to restore your soul. He's not a big meanie for calling you to a godly life. He's saving you. He's rescuing you. He's preparing a table for you. Sheep should not come up with their own ideas about how to best lead themselves. We're not bright animals, friends. Let the shepherd call out the path for you to walk. Let him lead and guide with his staff and rod. He wants you to finish your life in his pen, to be welcomed into his house forever and ever. And so if you don't know Christ this morning, the choice is yours. You can pick up rocks and try and kill him because you don't believe that he's the door. Or you can believe in him and instead of throwing rocks, you can throw yourself into his loving arms. Jesus Christ saves people all around this world every single day. Is today your day? And friends, if you do know Christ... The choice is yours. You can try and ignore the voice of the beautiful shepherd who wants to give you life to the fullest and bring you home to be with him. Or you can obey him. I promise you, a life in obedience to Christ will let you say, I have no want. I have no fear. He's a good shepherd. He lays down his life for his sheep. And friends, it's, it's obviously hard to hear those words. We got communion elements looking us in the face. And I'll invite the ushers now. They're going to come forward. They're going to pass the bread. Um, and if you're a follower of Jesus, you're here this morning, you're totally welcome to partake with us. As the bread comes around, just take a piece and hold on to it, and we'll all take it together after I've prayed. And if you don't know Jesus, he's not your Savior and Lord. We'll just ask that you let the elements pass you by. And this morning, it's good for us to remember that he laid down his life for his sheep. He promised to do that, and he did it. And he didn't just promise to do that like whenever this happens in John, a couple years, maybe months before his death. The prophet Ezekiel spoke of this exact promise 600 years before Christ is even born. Hear these words from Ezekiel 34. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he's among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. And I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak. That's 600 years before Christ is born, and it's fulfilled in Jesus. God himself came to search for his sheep. And this was not like a pleasant mountainside in the Alps stroll. This searching 
came at immeasurable cost to himself. Peter actually writes for us about the cost to the shepherd. He writes this, For to this, Christians, you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Friends, Jesus Christ, the good shepherd, the door, he bore your sins in his body on the cross. He did that for you, for me. And by those wounds, we have been healed. Consider the cost of that this morning. You were straying like sheep, unaware of the danger you were in, that I was in, and Christ came, God himself, to come and get us. And he did that so we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Praise God in your hearts for him taking on the penalty you deserved. And as we receive these elements representing Christ's body and blood, I want you to take a moment and thank him for your soul, for the rescue of your soul. I'm going to pray now for both elements, and then we'll all take the bread together, and following that, the ushers will immediately pass out the cup, and as it comes around, just drink, place the cup back in the tray, and pass it along. Let's thank God for his sacrifice this morning. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that we're sitting in your presence because of the Spirit of your Son. Lord, we know that you are here with us, that you indwell believers. And so God, as we address you, we know we're addressing you. You're listening. And Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son. Thank you for the promise you made hundreds and thousands of years ago and fulfilling it in Jesus, coming to earth as a man to shepherd your people, to die on their behalf, to bear their sins in your body on the cross. Jesus, we celebrate your completed work. We acknowledge that you lived sinlessly, that you died sacrificially, that you were raised immortally, and that you're coming again bodily. And Lord, we remember, you've asked us to do this in your word. We're doing it right now. We remember, Lord, that you died on our behalf. We praise you. Jesus, we acknowledge your essence, that you are the only means of salvation. You are who we come to, who we come through to be saved. And Jesus, we acknowledge that you're the beautiful shepherd. You're good. Your ways are good. They're whole. Lord, teach us to obey. And now as we take these elements, Lord, we just offer ourselves again to you as those who have been saved by your grace, Lord, we acknowledge that it is not our work that has accomplished this salvation. And yet we want to dedicate our lives to you. We want to give you all of the rest of our works. We want to act out this salvation so that many others will see the goodness of God. 
We love you, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. You may take the bread. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do give your name glory. We acknowledge that this was your good plan and that you love your son because he was willing to provide salvation for all who would call on his name. And so, Father, if there's someone here this morning who is yet to call on the name of Jesus to be saved, I ask that you would impress their heart, that they would see the reality of God and commit their ways to him. Jesus, we acknowledge your sacrifice for us and we thank you for it. And for those of us who love you or are in a relationship with you that we get to call you our brother in front of the Father. Lord, for those of us who are walking in a manner that does not honor you, would you heal us? Lord, keep us from sin. We want to look like you here in this world so that more and more people would know who God is like, what he is and Lord, we know that that is shown fully bodily in Jesus. Jesus, we collectively believe that you are the door. You're the gateway to salvation. And we believe that you are the good shepherd. That is part of your essence and we just acknowledge that. We give you glory for who you are. Jesus, I ask that you would speak to us maybe today, maybe this week, whether it's through your spirit impressing something on our heart. We know every time we open your word that you are speaking to us. Maybe it's through a friend, a mentor figure. Lord, we long to be more like you. Help us to see those moments where God is intervening in the universe, in our life, to make us more into the image of his son. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. And so friends, go now knowing that you are the sheep of the Good Shepherd. Have a wonderful week.